The following is a part of the Radio Memphis On Demand service. It originally aired live on Radio Memphis and has been edited for time. Uh, here on the Sunday night, as we do each and every Sunday night here on the Booze and the Blues, tonight a very special evening. Um, our guest this evening is a, a longtime uh, friend of the program, a friend of the station. Uh, we've had you down here before a time or two in, uh, in a couple of capacities, and it's always a thrill to have you around. Mr. Jimmy Crossway is here. Jimmy, how are you, sir? I'm good, Rick. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. Anytime, my friend. Um, you know, you, uh, I, when I, when I, talk to various people about who's coming onto the program and I mention your name, they all light up, you know, and they always say, Oh, it's, it's mud boy. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's the puppet man. The puppet man. I hear a lot of that. And the artist yourself, you're a sculptor. You do all yeah. sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. I mean, you have a, a very wide breadth of art that you, that you live in. Well, yeah. Uh, I've been really lucky in uh, in my life in that uh, I have known and at times worked with some really wonderful and wonderfully talented people. Um, that truly has been my good fortune in this world. Um, so I've been able to uh, glean from a number of uh, different artists, uh, different elements of the creative process well that's that's uh, kind of important for any type of artist i would think to expose yourself to as much well, different styles and feelings and I'll, thoughts and i'll tell you i was lucky in that uh when i was a kid i grew up on a street in memphis called cowden cowden avenue yeah, between yeah. Uh, Young, yeah. between highland and patterson yeah. over in the Memphis State area or University of Memphis area. Cowden <laughs> is broken up and runs through the city all the way through Midtown, Yeah, you know. Yeah. But the street I grew up on, uh, I was born in 1945, and uh, I one of the first of the baby boomers. And that street that I grew up on, was written up in the Commercial Appeal or the Memphis Press Cemetery in the early 50s as having more children on a one-block area <laughs> than any street in Memphis. We had 76 kids. Oh, my God. They were either my age or my older brother's age, and probably 80% boys. I always felt a little sorry for the girls on that block. But, Outnumbered uh, a bit. It was uh, almost like uh, Lord of the Flies. I mean, we, we were uh, <laughs> kind of a, yeah. a tribal, yes, a, a tribal uh, society in and of ourselves. And um, I like that it was almost like Lord of the Flies because it got pretty dark, if I recall. Well, yeah, we I'm sure did. You know, we had spears in hand at one point or another. <laughs> Chasing cats or whatever, you know, for praise well, yeah. presented itself. <laughs> and uh, it was also a, a pretty good mixture of, of uh, folks in uh, a, uh, lower middle class, middle class, uh, a couple of doctors or whatever. Uh, it, it was a good mix of people. And when I was five years old, uh, one of the uh, women on the street introduced me to the Memphis Children's Theater. 
So I was uh, one of those despicable child actors at the age of five. In fact, the first uh, play I was in, I was five years old, and uh, Miss Lucille Ewing is the woman that started the Memphis Children's Theater. And uh, she cast me in The Emperor's New Clothes, and I was the little kid that got to stand up and say, but look, he isn't wearing any clothes. Why, <laughs> the child is right, uh, you know. And, where, did, um, where did this take place? Was there like a, the- was there a, a building, a theater uh, for this well, thing? Or? Yeah, it was uh, a, a Quonset Hut kind of uh, community center. And then by the second year, it was uh, in the Pink Palace Museum in the old theater. Oh, wow. That was... Uh, uh, we shared the children's theater, shared that theater space with uh, Memphis Little Theater, which was the first kind of adult community, community theater, theater yeah. that became Theater Memphis uh, yeah. and moved to Audubon Park. But the, the Pink Palace was, uh, you know, built by Clarence Saunders and where the theater was, was his indoor swimming pool. It had that natural uh, slant from the shallow Shallow to the deep end. And then they built a stage, and it was a full full (laughs) tilt theater. Y'all were in the pool. (laughs) In fact, when I was... uh, The second play that I was in was uh, Rumpelstiltskin. And I, of course had the starring role of Rumpelstiltskin. And that was performed over in Overton Park. Uh, what do they call that lake? It's either something like, there was a little, a lake. It's not the one that's there now. Uh, yeah. In, in, uh, in the, the Greensward area. Yes, right. And they used to have like fly fishing, uh, uh, casting yeah. competitions. It, and there was the lake, story of the girl I, I that died know there. the name and, of it. It's like Liberty Lake or some kind yeah. of something lake. And the audience sat across the lake, and the uh, other side of it was the stage area. With, yeah. You know. Um, yeah, because now there's a children's playground to the right of it if you're facing the lake, and then toward the left is the And then the play there. moved to the uh, Pink Palace. And I remember there was a, a, a trap door in the stage, and... In the end, Rumpelstiltskin stomps his foot when they guess his name. And yeah. A big puff of smoke came up, and I jumped down in the trap door and disappeared. Whatever. <laughs> How cool is that, though? <laughs> and then the third play I was in when I was approaching eight years old was uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And Judy Pizer in the Center for Southern Folklore uh, was also... One of the dwarfs. <laughs> Take a guess which one, right? <laughs> she was grumpy. She was grumpy. She was typecast at the age of eight. Oh, no. and, oh Judy. And she would introduce me to people even, you know, a year or two ago. She would say, yeah, this is Jimmy Crossway. He and I slept together in the third grade. <laughs> 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 That's because there were the seven beds for the seven dwarfs on stage in one scene where we all wake up and, of course, Sleepy is yawning and Dopey's going, done. <laughs> and 
uh, Judy being grumpy's going like that. <laughs> and I was Doc. And unfortunately, Doc was the only character that had these paragraph-length lines. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was all like four score and seven years ago, us dwarfs set out upon them, you know. It was really difficult to kind of remember all these lines, and all I got from the other dwarfs was duh or, or happy and would grin or what. See, you're the spokesman of the bunch on, on this yeah. whole thing. And you were, what, eight at that time? Yeah. And now I'm getting, I don't know. Uh, it, it's funny, in terms of the arts, theater was the first art that I really fully engaged in. And when I was eight and a half, it was uh, 1953 or 54 at the latest. And uh, I was in a television series that never made TV about the life of Judge Kelly. Now, Judge Kelly was a famous juvenile court judge here in Memphis. And uh, she also headed up the Memphis Children's Home. And I played a kind of a ward of the court. Uh, a street urchin, if you will. Uh, along with a, another fellow named Colin, uh, Colin Heath, who was a bit older than I. And uh, the part of Judge Kelly was played by a pretty well-known uh, Hollywood actress that was in the soaps uh, mm -hmm. of that day either the guiding light or as the world turns or something like that. And so they brought her to Memphis. And all of this was filmed at what at that time was uh, an empty 19th century club on Union Avenue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yeah. across from where Julius Lewis was. Right. And uh, now is the Red uh, red, fish. red fish. Yeah, red fish. You know. yeah. But it was a yeah. big, you know, big rooms, and it, and that represented the Memphis Children's Home. And at that time, television cameras were about the size of washing machines. Oh, they were enormous. And, yes. And Judge Kelly, the actress, was fairly tall, and I was just this little squirt, short, you know, eight-year-old kid. And <laughs> to get us framed right. In these, you know, in these huge cameras, they needed to uh, increase my height. So, my my part uh, in in that uh, series was I ask a guy if he wants to play checkers, and he says, "No, kid, get out of here, you bother me." And he knocks the checkers on the floor, and I'm picking them up and pouting, and then Judge Kelly comes over to console me. And I'm looking up at her adoringly, and then we have to walk a ways. And the only way to make me fit in the, the screen properly with her is they built a kind of a walkway out of encyclopedias that I had to walk along, <laughs> like looking up at her and not looking down so I <laughs> fall, fall off over the damn yeah, um, bridge that was made. So anyway, you know, the magic of Hollywood. After yeah, <laughs> after that day of shooting, my part was done, and the reason the series never reached TV was shortly after they filmed two 30-minute pilots, and uh, 
then it was discovered that Judge Kelly was implicated in a big baby selling scam. Oh no! That came out of the Memphis Children's oh, Home. Oh, oh no! And was essentially run by Judge Kelly's secretary, a Miss Georgia Tan, and a lawyer out of Nashville. And they sold babies left and right. Joan Crawford bought her children. The mommy dearest children Reed. from the Memphis oh, Children's no. Home. June Allison bought her children from there. Oh, I did not uh, know that. That's uh, that's a bit scandalous. <laughs> well, <laughs> that that pretty much ended my acting career. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Otherwise, Judge. I might have been Timmy on the Lassie show. You could have been. You could have gone into all sorts of great shows. <laughs> died of a drug overdose when I was 20. Well, there's yeah. that, yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, on another note, and this kind of ties this all together with what I first brought up about I'm really lucky to have known and at times worked with some really wonderfully talented people. One of those people was a fellow named Neil Ellis. And Neil Ellis was a Memphis poet I first encountered him when I was 15 or 16 years old. He was one of a group of kind of beatnik bohemians that hung out uh, in Midtown over in apartments and houses on Jefferson Street, which are now kind of all part of the either the hospital complex mm -hmm. or whatever. But Neil was a truly, truly gifted poet and <clears throat> if you don't mind i'd love to tell a poem I oh mean, please to this do day yeah. i remember one poem in particular neil wrote called a hill it was an up there tall brown frown with a path for coming down the path was a dare but the hill was only there only there didn't care only the top from a bottom, only the up from a down. How can you stand at the bottom of a steep brown hill that you can't run down? Neil Ellis. Wow. Um, Pretty impressive. Yeah. He's one of the few poets that I memorize some of his work and still retain it. <laughs> and believe me, I've forgotten an awful lot. The older you get, the more you forget. Um, but back to Neil. Uh, many years after I had first met Neil, I came to learn that Neil was a ward of the court in the Memphis Children's Home. And when he was 12 years old, a farming couple in Mississippi came up and adopted him, sort of, but he was essentially out on loan to see if they liked having this 12-year-old. Lease with the option to buy. That, right. It was like, uh, yeah. and, and essentially this couple took Neil to Mississippi and worked him as a farmhand for a year and then brought him back. And when he was brought back to Memphis. He's 13 years old, but he discovers that his brother and sister have been adopted by a wealthy New York couple, which I'm sure bought his brother and sister 
from Miss Georgia Tan and Judge Kelly. Wow. And, uh, Neil essentially left the Memphis Children's Home when he was about 15 and lived on his own by his wits. Um, and I'm sure that that, uh, as much as anything, uh, gave Neil, this wonderful soul and spirit that manifests itself in his poetry. And if you don't mind, um, I'd kind of like to read a poem uh, that was written by Jim Dickinson. Sure. And it so happens that we are now in uh, a week that represents 10 years since Jim Dickinson passed. He died August 15th in 2009 and uh, uh, there'll be a few uh, things happening this this coming week to sort of uh, reflect on Jim and his passing not the least of which is uh, Luther Dickinson Jim's son wrote me an email and, and asked me to join all of the Sons of Mud Boy, which is Luther and Cody Dickinson, Sons of Jim, Steve Selvage, who is Sid Selvage's son, uh, Ben Baker, who is Lee Baker's son, and others to do a recording session in, uh, at Sam Phillips' studio this coming Wednesday. Uh, in a celebration of the 10th year of Jim's passing. And then the following day, Thursday, the 15th, uh, Jim's wife, Mary Lindsay Dickinson, and Robert Gordon will be on uh, Andrea Lisley's show on WEVL Mm -hmm. from 11 till 12 o'clock, for those of you who might want to catch it. And since we were talking about art and poetry, I want to read from Jim's book, I'm Just Dead, I'm Not Gone, uh, a poem that he wrote. And it goes, Music and painting, Coleridge, Poe, and Mickey Spillane, Elvis on the Dorsey Show, and Rhapsody in Blue on the Old Brown Radio. My mother's piano in Baptist church, Froggy the Gremlin and the organ grinder with the monkey. Without thinking about what kind of sense it made, I wrote a story about an Indian. An isolated Indian is carving a totem pole. He is unobserved, working by himself away from any family or tribe. As he labors away on the task, it starts to rain harder and harder. A storm sweeps over the Indian artist. He struggles on through torrents of rain and flashes of lightning until he is satisfied and goes home. Time passes. The artist returns, bringing with him a friend to whom he wishes to show his work of art. But he discovers his totem pole disappoints him. He realizes that what he wants to share is not the totem pole, but the rainstorm. The story of the Indian and the rainstorm demonstrates the frustration contained in the very nature of the artistic experience and asks 
where is the art? Is the object the art, or is the creation the art, and the art object a shell? This dilemma still troubles me, Jim wrote. Wow. And it is interesting in that uh, artwork or the product of the creative experience is really the byproduct of the creative experience. It is. <laughs> so it, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, Jimmy Crosswaite, another talent, is here in this uh, in the studio today. We've been having some fun reminiscing about uh, some of the early days of your artistic life in the theater and uh, television, and uh, how that came to a swift and uh, quick stop, really? as, <laughs> as as happens. But you, uh, you know, yeah, well, yeah, well, you um, have always had. I mean, when, when you're an artist, it never goes away, no matter what it is that you do. Well, I think, uh, again, it has to do with a creative bent that doesn't go away. And it will find maybe different outlets um, yeah. so that it's not any, for me, it hasn't been any one particular art form that uh, uh, has uh, sort of kidnapped me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I could go on to, you know, the story of my life, the, the, the theater part kind of uh, passing when I'm eight and a half. But by the time I'm 12, I was uh, kind of interested in magic. And there was a, a shop downtown called The Fun Shop, uh, and it was on Union Avenue about where the uh, downtown Hueys is now. And uh, there, I uh, first bought most all of the, the inexpensive magic tricks they had and learned to work them. And then I got a job demonstrating these magic tricks <laughs> when I was 12 years old at the fun shop. And that what a was, way to sell the stuff, man. You know, this 12-year-old can do it. You can certainly do it. <laughs> and they didn't pay me. So uh, I would take a, tr a magic trick that sold for a dollar, and the price was marked in pencil up in the corner, and I would erase the, the zeros and put 25s after the dollar. So I would sell a dollar trick for a dollar and a quarter. I would pocket the quarter and give the, the shop the money they asked for. And it was... Uh, That's a magic trick in and of itself, yeah, Jimmy. It was, it was owned by a man named Sterling. I can't remember Sterling's last name at the moment. But he also had a fellow named Frank Mosher that worked for him. And every day at lunch, I would take Frank's blue plate empty blue plate to a diner around the corner about where the Peabody parking garage is now and get uh, Frank the blue plate special. And when I first started working there, uh, they said, okay, uh, we have, you know, we don't want you to go in the basement. <laughs> which of course is the first place that I went. When you're 12, it's like, what do you mean I can't go and in And down there? in the basement, there was a big blackboard that had first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. It was like the races that were happening in Hot Springs, Arkansas. <laughs> oh, okay. They were booking uh, down in the basement. Or they had. I don't think they were still a bookie joint when I was 
yeah. they're working, but that's what they had been. <laughs> Whatever. They may be still work. Night, I don't know. You know. Not selling enough magic tricks to pay the bills, I see. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> now, when I'm about 15 years old, I was introduced to Jim Dickinson a friend of mine that lived on my street, a little older than me and closer to Jim's age, introduced us. And uh, uh, at that time, the first time I ever met Jim Dickinson, he was uh, putting paint on a canvas and beating it with a towel (laughs) and kind of screaming, and it was... uh, an interesting experience. I'm sure see, that was to see that. Know, yeah, this madman just sort of attacking a canvas with a towel and a bunch of paint. And at that time, I was in the, I think the tenth grade. I must have been sixteen because I was able to drive to his house. I was in the tenth grade, and uh, he told me that Tech High School in Memphis offered. Uh, art classes three hours a day and I was kind of disappointed with I was going to East High School and uh, really making pretty poor grades I was reading three or four books a week but they had nothing to do with schoolwork. They were like <laughs> Allen Ginsberg poetry and Lawrence Furlan and the different beatnik yeah. poets <laughs> yeah. and, and whatnot and uh when Jim told me about Tech High School and these art classes, I thought, well, gee, maybe I should change schools, which I did. <laughs> I essentially failed the 10th grade at East High, and then the following year, I enrolled at Tech, where they taught commercial art three hours a day. Most of the people at Tech were taking, like, auto mechanics yeah. or printing. It was the only technical school in Memphis where a lot of troubled kids went or winded up. Yeah. But also a lot of really talented uh, Travis Womack was a musician that had a great garage band. He went to tech taking auto mechanics and putting together his hot group, you know. Um, And I, in fact, played drums. Uh, He had a regular drummer named Danny Taylor but they did some gig over in Blyville or somewhere, and I went, and Danny said, why don't you sit in, and I played a set with them or whatever. Um, And shortly after that, uh, having met Dickinson, uh, he he came to me and said uh, he wanted to cut a record. Uh, This would have been about 1963, and by then I'm 18, so I'd known him on and off uh, for a couple of years. But uh, Jim Queskin was uh, sort of hot and uh, doing jug band stuff uh, uh, at that time. And Bill Justice was a producer out of Nashville and, and wanted uh, Jim to, to cut a demo. And he... Uh, Jim didn't know quite what to do, but being inspired by Jim Queskin's jug band, he decided that we would be a jug band. Now, Jim, when he was younger, 
was able to see uh, uh, Will Shea, uh, Shade, and uh, the Memphis Jug Band right. uh, performing there in uh, Whiskey Shoot or whatever downtown in the Cotton Row. Oh, yeah, those, uh, and they'd been around areas. forever. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he decided there was a group also called the Beale Street Sheiks. Uh-huh. And Jim decided that we were going to become the new Beale Street Sheiks. The new Beale yeah. Street Sheiks. And he told me to go to a hardware store and buy a washboard. I was going to be a washboard player. I went and bought a Zinc King. And uh, we recorded <clears throat> uh, a forty-five for Bill Justice, uh, or a demo. And um, the one side was the song, Nobody Wants You When You're Down and Out. And I can't remember truly what the flip side was. Uh, she Ain't Got No, or something like that. Oh, yes, she does. Oh, no, she don't. You just ain't seen them. I'm satisfied with my gal. That was it, maybe. I'm satisfied with my gal was one side, and nobody wants you when you're down and out was the flip side. And Jim sent it to uh, Justice, and Justice wrote back saying, oh, that's great, man. That's great. We're putting it out, you know, next week. And Jim was saying, Bill, that that was just a demo. And he said, oh, no, no, no. You couldn't do it any worse. We're, that, you that's couldn't do it, it. any worse. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, no. So uh, they, you know. They released it. Pressed it and released it. But um, <laughs> we had to join the Musicians Union at that time. Radio would not play That's right. music by people who were non-union. And so we had to go join the Musicians Union, and we did what's called the smoker, which is you go back into the studio. And we recorded that, by the way, at uh, Sam Phillips' recording studio, and it was engineered by Roland James. And uh, we went back into the studio. And, well, we joined the union, then we go back into the studio, and that's when they log it as having been recorded. Oh, than I see. yeah. The time we actually recorded it, and we're not in the union. So what that means is you just go in there and smoke a cigarette, and that's you know. And the, you're done. The, yeah. yeah. There's the session <laughs> that's why sign called here. A smoker. And that's awesome. And <laughs> and then it was getting a little play, and in fact, it got some kind of good reviews in Billboard magazine and whatever. And then the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show and, <laughs> and American there music went. took a nosedive. So much like my acting career. <laughs> <laughs> Outside Our forces intervened. Jug band came to a screeching halt thanks to the English invasion. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> later uh, the Sons of Mud Boy got together, and we've uh, uh, had a couple of recording sessions at Arden, and uh, they convinced me that I should sing uh, that that song that Jim and I recorded, Nobody Wants You When You're Down and Out. And if you're queued up to play that, I would uh, You'd like to hear, like it, wouldn't to you? hear it again. Yeah. Well, here, here it is.
I live my life like a millionaire Had plenty of money, boys, I didn't care Carried out my friends for a mighty good time Buying bootleg liquor, champagne and wine Well, I hit the skids and I fell so low Didn't have no friends, nowhere to go If I ever get my hands on a dollar again I'm gonna latch on to it till that eagle grins Because nobody wants you When you're down and out In your pockets you ain't got a penny Look for your friends, boys, you haven't any well You get back on your feet again And everybody wants to be your long-lost friend Now it's mighty true, without a doubt Nobody wants you when you're down and out Yesterday the man came to get his rent I told him all about the money I spent Told him I was so broke, man, I didn't know what to do Said that I'd go out and I'd find one or two Well, I hit each and every friend of mine Man, they wouldn't let me have one lousy time You know it's true, without a doubt Nobody wants you when you're down and down. I mean, nobody wants you when you're down and down. In your pockets, you ain't got a penny. Look for your friends, boys, and you haven't any well. You get back on your feet again. And everybody wants to be your long-lost friend It's awful true, but without a doubt Nobody wants you when you're down and out They don't want you when you're down and out <laughs> What a great song. That's <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, is the original recording still around anywhere? Or? Gosh, I hadn't got a clue. I think it, I, I should remember the fellow's name that first recorded it, and it was in the 20s. You know. Oh, no, I mean, you know, when when you're when you originally recorded that, this this wasn't the one that oh, y'all did it. When Jim and I, yeah, recorded when Jim and, it, yeah. it would have been around well before the Beatles, so yeah. uh, <laughs> just before '64. We yeah. maybe did it in '63. Yeah, but uh, I'm sure the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan Show in '64. Yeah, so that's when the invasion happened. Yeah, that. it was in '64. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jim was, you know, Jim did a theater yeah. uh, in Memphis. It was called the Market Theater. And it was uh, in the old, what was called the Farmer's Market there on Cleveland or Crosstown, just up from where the new high tone is. Uh -huh. At the very end of that 
row of buildings right now i think it was an antique store it was a flea market store, or some sort flea market yeah, yeah. yeah well that was where the market theater was it would seat about 49 people and <laughs> the reason it was 49 is if it had seated 50 people we would have had to uh, come up to all kinds of codes and specifications. <laughs> so it's said 49. Fire Marshal and all of those people. Yeah. But if it's under 50 seats, you don't have to, uh, you know, that's hilarious. All of those uh, regulations. <laughs> In fact, we had to take two seats out to, to become a 49 seat oh, theater. And at that time, uh, uh, on, to really, you know, the, the plays were everything from Chekhov to uh, whatever. I was in one play that was written by uh, Frederick Keppel. Uh, oh, really? Yes. Uh, at that time, he was Ricky Keppel. But uh, Frederick Keppel wrote a play called The Boy in the Birdbath. I played uh, a father of the boy in the birdbath. Anyway, uh on weekends, Jim could make more money doing hootenannies. At that time, folk music was sort of the, you know, the prevailing popular uh, music of the day. There was the Kingston Trio and Joan Baez. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Dylan. Uh, Peter Paul and Mary and yeah. all of that stuff. And uh, so we did hootenannies. And... Uh, I also, at that time, started playing oil drums, uh, just 55-gallon oil drums that I would beat with these handmade kind of mallets, and I would do a strange sort of chanting that I was really kind of uh, imitating a New Orleans musician named King George, and he would beat his sort of drums and and do a kind of moaning, mournful, uh, uh, non-existent language sort of... Uh, right. Uh, Gibberish type of thing. Guttural, yeah. visceral, you know, music. And I did my own variation of that, which uh, uh, tickled Jim a bit. <laughs> and <laughs> shortly after that, we, uh, uh, Jim wrote a song uh, called If You Want Me, You Can Find Me. And uh, I believe you have the recording of that song done by a group called Lawson and Four More. Uh huh. <laughs> and they recorded it in John Fry's original Ardent Studios which was in his parents' house <laughs> over on either Grandview or something like that. It was over by the uh, Memphis Waterworks, close to the University of Memphis, uh, where his parents uh, lived. And the studio was set up in the uh, pool house, wherever people, you know, changed their clothes to get into their swimming trunks and jump into the swimming pool was the uh, uh, room where the musicians were set up. 
the engineering booth was in the main part of the house on the other side of the swimming pool, and that's where John, you know, uh, recorded whatever was happening in the pool house. <laughs> and Lawson and four more um, recorded this song, and Jim was producing it, and he called me and said, look, Jimmy, it needs something else. How about you play a cardboard box with maracas? And uh, he seemed to think that would be fitting for this song. <laughs> and, of course, it wasn't much different from playing 55-gallon drums with, with homemade mallets. Handmade mallets. But it, it provided an interesting sound. You would get a... a the downbeat making a boom on the box, and then the upbeat was the tsh of the maracas. Yeah. Boom, tsh, boom, tsh, boom, tsh. Yeah. And then when you do a double time, it, uh, it makes an interesting it, it sound. Yeah. Made, it made a really interesting sound. If you've got that and we could pull that up, I have I'd it love here to hear it again. We're going to play it and we'll go into a break after that. But, 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 but before we got on the air, I heard a little bit about this story and you were, oh, yeah. <laughs> there was something going yeah. on after the recording. I lit up a joint. And, I mean, I'm 17 As, or as so, you do, yes. And I guess John Fry might have been 19 or 20, however older he was than I. And John turned to Jim Dickinson and said, in his kind of Jimmy Stewart voice, Well, Jim, is that a marijuana cigarette that Jimmy is smoking? And Jim said, Yes, John, I believe it is. He said, oh, I was just curious. <laughs> but I think that was the first time John saw a musician smoking pot, but it was not the last. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, here it is. Uh, if you if you want me, you can uh, you can find me. Is that is it? That's, that's the one. That's the title. Lawson yep. and four more, and it's uh, uh, you on a, a couple of boxes and some maracas. One box. One box and, and two some... maracas. Well, here it is. Enjoy it right here at Radio Memphis.
Crossweight, uh, telling stories, telling lies, knowing where the bodies are buried. <laughs> uh, we uh, we've been dabbling a little bit in uh, a little bit of the uh, Mud Boy, Sons of Mud Boy, and uh, Mud Boy and the Neutron stuff, and and that's really kind of what I what I want to kind of get to. I think at this point, if that's good with you, yeah. because Mud Boy and the Neutrons is. I, I was up late last night uh, reading a lot about it because I've, I've, I've known enough about it to get myself in trouble, but I really wanted to <laughs> kind of delve into it. And you guys, you guys didn't tour much. No. <laughs> you played a few shows here and there. They were wild shows. Yeah. But, uh, and you only really recorded with three albums, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, known it felons was really and two, and maybe a third one was a compilation of the first two with a little something. Yeah, because there's a live record, and then you have the other two. Yeah. And Mark and I were going back and forth last night about it. We were trying to hunt down some of this music, and what confused the two of us, and I think it's just it was an accident, was that the cover of Known Felons and Drag and uh, They Walk Among Us um, is basically the same cover. It's yeah. It's it's the Mud Boy, yeah. Which you made that Mud Boy, right? I made this one, but the original Mud Boy was made by a sculptor named John McIntyre, who uh, taught at the uh, College of Art, yeah, which was called the Art Academy at that time. Now it's called the College of Art, and was it something it you asked him to little, do? Or? It was a little dumpier. But the one that he made was just made out of Mississippi mud. He made it down at the river. He scooped up mud yeah. on the banks of the Mississippi River and piled it on a kind of a, a plywood board yeah. and made what looked reminiscent of like the tar baby. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, he had beer cap eyes, bits uh, of straw and, for and straw for hair. And I, uh, uh, over time, we would when we performed, we would take this McIntyre sculpture and put it on the stage at our feet. And over time, the mud dried, cracked, broke off in places. It was delicate, and yeah. In the left out in the rain once, it just sort of <laughs> melted. And uh, by the time we were doing an album and needed a cover. The Mud Boy had dissolved in <laughs> the original. So I made this one out of essentially ceramic clay, a which more is why it's yeah. a little redder. It's not real Mississippi mud like John's did you, did original you, Did you fire it in a kiln no, to protect no, it? No, no, that was just... Just for that the, shot. Yeah, 
just for that picture. Which brings and you know it's it looks like little clouds are around him. Yeah, but that was dry ice and water <laughs> around him, making a, a sort of Scene. whimsical, uh, ghosty sort of fog that he's sitting in or a stew. Which brings me to this. You there were there were four of you guys that are doing this and these were incredible shows. But but before that you had to have a name. Yeah. Mud Boy and the Neutrons. Where did that the, come from? Okay. That's a a story that involves Jim Dickinson touring the world with Ry Cooter. Uh and what a show they, that must have been. Yeah. When they were returning from Europe, Ry Cooter's agent said Hey, how would you uh, like to open, meaning, you know, Cooter and Dickinson, and I, I don't know exactly what they called their group. Maybe it was just Rye Cooter and Friends or whatever. But uh, they, uh, the manager said, how would you like to open your group, open for uh, Alice Cooper? And Cooter looked at him and said, no, I don't want to open for some goddamn mud boy in the neutrons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how that happened. And, just, just... and Dickinson came back and told me that story laughing. And I said, I kind of like that name. <laughs> and so we decided that that will be who we will be. That goddamn mud boy in the neutrons. That's hysterical. But now once the name... You know, Sid went for it. Lee Baker went for it. And uh, uh, it had a a kind of a real meaning for Sid. I mean, he liked to think of the mud boy as the spirit of the Mississippi River that we conjure up when we perform. Sure. And that the spirit of the mud boy, you know. As if it's a living thing. (laughs) It's alive. And the rest of you guys are just the neutrons. (laughs) And and when we, our first uh, performance was on a Halloween night, and we were in total makeup. I mean, uh, I was like the clown at midnight, and Sid had been teaching anthropology at uh, Southwestern College, which is now Rhodes College. And, uh, uh, as an anthropology instructor, he was familiar with uh, uh, baboons and, you know, the, uh, the social uh, the, the, life their of baboons. Yeah. So he painted himself like a male baboon with very bright reds oh, they're and colorful blues creatures. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 the yeah. baboons' the faces. The yes. Yeah, <laughs> for summoning up the, the mud boy from... All of you guys were doing something like you, you played in dresses. I think it were you would wear like a house dress or something. Uh, or? Lee Baker did. Lee did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, Dickinson always would like to dress up like either Elvis or <laughs> something. <laughs> I don't know. I never paid that much. A lot of capes, and you know. But we also had dancing girls and Marcia and Connie and Dixie were our three major dancing girls. And uh, for some performances, there was uh, Randall Lyon, who uh, was one of the first performance artists that I knew. 
And at times, he did a great routine that he uh, he became a character that he called the Guru Biloxi. And his rap was something like, All right, all right, here I am, the Guru Biloxi, coming to you live from the Guru Biloxi Holy Dome and Trailer Park in Biloxi, Mississippi. And you come on down, I will straighten your soul, I will give you four steel-belted radial arm tires for a small donation of you know he just had this whole patter yeah yeah he was great (laughs) he was uh, a great parody of the evangelists of the time and uh so um uh, so this is maharishi (laughs) yogi and the whole nine yards and one (laughs) guru balaxi Brought to you live by Mud Boy. <laughs> so you have these personas that are happening, this stage presence, and then you get into the studio and you're putting together this first record, Known Felons in Drag. Yeah. And I understand that was a bit of a, uh, that was a, that was quite a tale behind this, wasn't there? I mean, or is it just as simple as just going well, into... Well, I mean, the title, of course, comes from the Allen Ginsberg poem. Howl. Howl, yes. And, uh, yeah. I've seen the best minds of my generation starving, hysterical, naked, running through the Negro streets of dawn. Yeah, know? which is the which was the another, third album, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've got some cuts off of that later. Uh, <laughs> now, Known Felons in Drag uh, was, um, gosh, I can't remember what was first, what was second. I think third. it was Known Felons was first, and then the second was this one. And it was Known Felons in Drag. And that is a story that's kind of related to Jerry. uh, Very Extremely Dangerous, Jerry? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Which I understand is on Amazon right now. I haven't had a chance to see it. I believe it is. Robert Gordon did this thing. Yeah. And he's quite the character. Okay. (laughs) And the story is... uh, Why am I having a senior moment with Jerry's last name? And, oh, uh, I'll see if I can. It, I'll see if I can look it up. <clears throat> um, because this, um, and I don't know why that is. I I've known him for ever, but being old and and senile. Yeah, it's available on Amazon and other places. Um, let's see here. Jerry McGill. Jerry McGill. I got it right here. <laughs> Paul Dwayne, Jerry McGill. Yes. Did snap before you reminded me. Yes, anyway. That's good. Jerry McGill uh, was a, an honest-to-God criminal and wanted by the Memphis police and others in different states. He did time in Florida. He had four different aliases that he went by. But uh, there was a night... When uh, uh, the blues festival was happening, and Sid Selvage was at the blues festival, and he tells the story. He said, I looked up and saw this woman that had to be the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my life. And she kind of came up to me and nudged me on the shoulder, and I thought, God, what is it with this woman? And then the woman spoke and said, known felons in drag. And it was Jerry McGill who wanted to come to the Blues Festival but was wanted by the police, so he came dressed as a woman. And, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> he didn't get arrested. So, 
the birth of known felons in drag. Um, and yeah, Robert Gordon and uh, Paul, gosh, the little Irish filmmaker, did uh, a documentary on McGill called Very Extremely Dangerous. I'm, I'm looking forward to the cover, the poster for it is a guitar case, like it's gone through an x ray and it has a <laughs> snake in it. And now, you know, Mud Boy and the Neutrons had as its core the four of us Sid, Jim, Lee Baker, and myself. But when we played these uh, gigs, we would have different side men that we would use bass players, uh, trap drummers. Uh, Jim Lancaster played mm. tuba. Jim Lancaster's also in the film. The, oh, yeah. The, uh, Very yeah, extremely he, dangerous. Yeah. He has a recording studio down in uh, uh, Florida, I think. And he and his wife, Jill, get McGill down there to do, and they live in a nice sort of neighborhood. And he's got a nice studio in his basement, and he wants to do some recording of McGill's work. And within the first day that McGill showed up down there, um, uh, he was arrested, whatever, but talked his way out of whatever that was about. And uh, then proceeded to just uh, uh, make it difficult for, for Jim and Jill to live in their little community. I would imagine with, so, with yeah. McGill there. And Jerry had split up from his girlfriend. Uh, she had kicked him out. And uh, they decided, though, that they were going to drive Jerry back to her to his girlfriend some 400 miles away. Holy Jesus. And the way Jim said is, I didn't know whether his girlfriend was going to take him back or not, but it was worth driving 400 miles to find out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, now in the, in the studio, uh, we would record, and I would sing a little bit. Uh, I didn't sing when we did live shows. I had a very bad memory at the time, and I was truly, you know, uh, overindulging in everything from whiskey and smoke and whatever. Right, you know. right. Which is also perhaps part of the reason we didn't tour. <laughs> could have been. It could have been the end of you guys. It would have been really short. <laughs> now we did go to Fayetteville, Arkansas once and played a gig. And on the way to Fayetteville, I think I polished off a bottle of Benedictine and brandy, and maybe a Valium or two. And by the time we got to that gig that night. I would sort of nod off and come back and nod <laughs> off and come back later like that. A lot of dynamics and, in your set that <laughs> night. Uh, and then, of course, we had to spend the night on the road, and we got into motels. I think Dickinson had to share a room with me, and St uh, Sid and, and Lee Baker shared a room together. And then we drove back to Memphis. And about three or four days later, uh, 
Sid was wondering what had died in his car. <laughs> and he opened the truck. And sure enough, I had left a pair of socks just opened in the truck. And it ended up smelling Got a like, little right. You know, yeah. yeah. God, that wasn't the first time that my, uh, you know, personal hygiene came into question. I there have... Was, I have a song from Known, Known Felons and Drag. Yeah. The tune Codeine, which oh, apparently yeah. was the, it was really the single from this record. Yeah. From my understanding. It Co- was Codine. Codine. Yeah. And it was, it was, um, yeah, Codeine. There you know where my mind went. Um, well, that's. <laughs> but that's, that was, that was part of the thing. But, uh, but that was, that was the big single off of that record, I think. Right? Yeah. It, uh, it got yeah. a lot of play because when I was looking for the record, and I'll have you know that, Amazon had a vinyl of Known Felons and Drag for ninety five bucks. That's cheap. I've heard that's yeah. about two hundred and fifty. Depending on where, where who's finding, because it's out of print. Yeah. You know, clearly. Yeah. Uh, there's not any downloads of this stuff. That's a hard record to find these yeah. days. So I was fortunate to find this track, and I can play it if you. If oh you, sure. If you, it's probably <laughs> been a minute since you've heard it. Yeah. But it, is there a story behind uh, Codine? Uh, no, other than it was our sort of our psychedelic. Uh, kind of uh, sure, yeah uh, this is late 60s early 70s in, influenced um, mm, coming out of the Woodstock into the weird time it was in the early 70s yeah it was you know because what 72 uh, is when all this happened of a fusion of uh, uh, sitar and uh, uh, heavy metal or whatever right uh, you know um, yeah because Mud there was a time when I played tablas for a short time, oh, yeah. and with and Lee Baker hated it because the tablas made notes. And yeah, they, they do. Yeah, were not the notes of the songs. <laughs> so I quickly had to abandon the tablas. Although the tablas would have worked on Codine, I think. You know. Um, yeah, because you guys started this with seventy two. Is that right? Seventy two. Yeah. yeah. So this is right around that time. It would have been a little later. 74, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, about the time you got into a studio and laid this down. Yeah, it seemed like we were doing more traditional things, and then it sort of uh, worked its way towards uh, uh, Codine. Okay. Well, let's let's hear it then. This is Codine. This is uh, Mudboy and the Neutrons right here at Radio Memphis.
Mudboy and the Neutrons there. Codine, that's a nice swampy thing you guys had working there. Yeah, you know, I just now realize that that song didn't really allow much for Sid, who had a really beautiful voice, yeah. but it's lost in that song, which is a little more guttural. Just, uh, and I think Jim is is doing the, you know, the primary uh, singing on that, and Sid's just being a sort of gentle uh, harmony behind it. Um, yes, yeah, I've got your Wikipedia page opened up over here, which there is one on you guys. Um, and it it makes reference to I don't know how accurate this is, but it makes reference to the fact that Known Felons and Drag was in 1986. 86, yeah, 86. Okay. I thought it was before that. No, me too. But I, I, it was music we had done. You know, you'd be been playing it for we years. Just, yeah, it, we waited a long time to do any recording. Negro Streets at Dawn <laughs> was 93, and that's a live record. Is that is that the one y'all did at the Daisy? I think it was. You know, I thought it was uh, a little of both, but. And then They Walk Among Us was the last one at 95, which is that one sitting yeah. in front of you. Uh, and you're on, a, you're on a bunch of compilations, of course, as well. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, everybody was... We, and the one at the Daisy, that was not the new Daisy, but the yeah, old the Across the street. Daisy the across original. the street, yeah. Um, yeah. You guys, uh, Mudboy and the Neutrons was was rather influential group, though. You, you inspired a lot of musicians over the years. Well, that's what they say. <laughs> um, big star being part of it well of course baker yeah. had an appearance well on that, you know yeah. jim was producing he produced a lot of uh records he produced ry cooter's first record right to the purple uh, valley or whatever that was called i think into the purple valley and uh <clears throat> he produced alex chilton yeah flies on sherbert and of course, the whole North Mississippi All Stars stuff, and you know that was part of that. Yeah, uh, um, big ass truck. Now, the main influence on Mud Boy was uh, like Furry Lewis uh, and his influence on Lee Baker. Yeah, in terms of how he tuned his guitar, Lee played with Furry for many years. Um, that was before the Agitators, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, 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 and it was sort of. During the time of uh, uh, Mudboy had formed around 72, but probably from 70 until 78, Lee played with Furry much more. Yeah. And through the years, actually, I played with Sid much more than, uh, you know, playing with Jim and Lee and Sid as Mudboy. Because mm-hmm. Sid had regular gigs at the Procope Gardens, which is where the uh, barbecue shop is now. Oh, yeah. On Madison. Yeah, and that's that the center uh, there, yeah. Then Jefferson Square, which burned down. That was downtown. Yeah. Um, and then he moved to the north end, Sid did. And he would play two or three nights a week, and I would join him. And sometimes Furry would join him and Lee. And. Uh, be quite the night. And sometimes it would be Lee and Sid and I playing the Memphis Queen on the trip down to Helena <laughs> or uh, different gigs that were not full tilt mud boy gigs. Right. Um, sometimes we would record like any and all of Sid's albums would have on it at one point or another 
my washboard, Dickinson's piano, Lee Baker's guitar. Mm -hmm. and, but that wouldn't be under the name of Mudboy and the Neutrons. That would be Sid Selvage and sure. the cold of the morning or a little bit of rain. And we all had a little bit to do with each other um, all along. Yeah, it was always collaborative with all well, you guys. Well, yeah, yeah, just like the North Mississippi All-Stars, uh -huh. being mainly Luther and Cody Dickinson with a bass player or whatever, a drummer, uh, other than Cody sometimes, uh, will become the sons of Mud Boy <laughs> yeah. when yeah. Luther and Cody play with Steve and Ben Baker and Steve Selvage and myself. And, and then you go sit in on uh, Yeah. Yeah. Now... Uh, it, 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 it's funny. I, I've now played more with the Sons of Mud Boy than I did with Mud Boy because they <laughs> wow. all, you know, we get more gigs. You get more gigs, yeah. Know? And quite honestly, I just love playing with all of those boys. And, well, they're talented and, guys, every one of them. They, yeah. I mean, some in terms of their. Uh, musicianship and craftsmanship they are you know dancing circles around their daddies and i'm not saying that well you know, al uh, along the same lines though the way you grew up you know on cowden they kind of did the same thing they yeah. they all grew up with you guys and you know other turner Oth and Turner, uh, yeah. uh, the whole uh, you know um North Mississippi blues, uh, the Hill Country stuff, yeah. R.L. Burnside yeah. and Junior Kimbrough, yeah. and those guys. all of those guys influenced Luther and Cody tremendously. Oh sure, and they still played with Charday. Other's granddaughter will mm -hmm. play with them, and <laughs> you know Luther took Charday and uh, gosh, Amy Levere and Shannon McNally and and. Uh, God, what's her name? Jean. Uh, uh, nice long dreads. Valerie Jean. Valerie Jean, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> and they did a, a, a record uh, called The Wandering. And uh, the subtitle of that is Go On Now, You Can't Stay Here, which I really, <laughs> really love. It's beautiful. Go on, you can't Not stay here. Not to Just be political, here. but it would be great to hear someone like Kamala Harris say that. Oh, no, I, I understand. Go on now, you can't stay Go here. Go on, that's enough. <laughs> Go on, that's, that's enough of that. I asked Luther what that was like touring. You know, they went on the road. And I said, what was it like touring with these four women? And he said, it was just a van full of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> it says a lot right there, man. It speaks volumes. Oh, That's brilliant. <laughs> but the point being that uh, there's a lot of mixing and matching and, uh, uh, you know, you're this group, you're that group. You know, Memphis has been famous for that. Yeah. It's it's incestuous yeah. in a in a good and, way. Uh, uh, another musician that was with uh, uh, Luther and Cody right from the beginning was Paul Taylor, mm -hmm. and uh, Luther and Cody Dickinson and Paul Taylor made up a group called DDT, mm -hmm. and Paul will play drums with the Sons of Mud Boy. Sometimes, sometimes George Slepic will join us, um, and with some of the sons of Mud Boy, which is 
what we call ourselves when Luther and Cody are not with us. Right, right. Uh, it's only when Luther, Cody, Steve Selvage, and Ben Baker uh, and I are all together that it is the full official Sons of Mud Boy. Yeah. <clears throat> but if Luther and Cody's not there, it's some of the Sons of some Mud of some, Boy. Some of the Sons and of Mud Boy. And that can involve <laughs> other people who are not sons at all, like Paul Taylor, although he's like an adoptive son, and Luke White. There's mm-hmm. a musician that would play with Ben Baker, Steve Selvage, and myself at Bar DKDC just any number of times, or at Minglewood, or wherever. And Luke, at the moment, is um, dealing with some health issues. In fact, I saw a couple of fundraisers that had yeah, been going on for we him. We did fundraisers for him just a week or so the, back. The Rail Garden, I think it was? All of the Sons of Mud Boy played at DKDC. Yeah. Then there was a, a whole other group of musicians that played at the rail garden the week mm-hmm. before that and then steve selvage ben baker and i played uh huey's midtown for the sunday afternoon four to seven gig and raised a few hundred dollars for luke he'll go in the hospital tomorrow and we're all wishing him well he's uh gonna have an operation on tuesday so he's got a big week ahead by Wednesday yeah. when all of the sons of Mud Boy get together to celebrate the 10 year uh, passing of Jim Dickinson, yeah. and Sam Phillips. Uh, Luke probably won't be able to join us, but we will sure uh, be I'm thinking sure of him. Yeah. He'll be there in spirit. Oh, I'm sure yeah. he will. I'm sure he will. <clears throat> and when we went into the studio and recorded um, these almost two CDs worth of material. Luke would always do a song dear to my heart uh, called I'm Your Puppet, which was, uh, of course, written by Memphis's own Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham. Yeah. And uh, uh, Luke has a great voice, a very honest and wonderful voice. And I always enjoyed playing that uh it's it's perfect for the washboard that song in yeah. particular hope it's going there uh, well there for you uh, coming up we've got more with mr jimmy crossweight from mud boy and the neutrons and other uh, endeavors and right now though as we'd like to do around this time of the program we get into a little bit of the news with uh, mr mark caldwell yeah. from the uh, memphis blues society thank you rick Thank you. Hannah and Jimmy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it is always a pleasure. pleasure. Oh, this is this is wonderful. I love it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I will get into the uh, to the news here, Rick. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, well, this is the uh, Memphis Blue Society gig and event calendar for the week of Sunday, um, August 11th. Uh, like I'd like to go over, we'll go over our jams. Um, every Sunday, 4.30 to 11, uh, the Memphis Blues Society sponsors the Wild Bill's Juke and Blues Jam, and that's hosted by the Juke Joint All-Stars. And that's over we just Wild heard them. Bill's. Yeah. yeah, that's over Wild Bill's uh, at 1580 Valentine. Anyway, that's 4 to, 4.30 to 11 every Sunday. A very storied room. That place true. Is. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of history there. Nothing has changed. There. <laughs> just like it was. Just like it was. It's, it's, that's what's so cool about oh, it. Yeah. It really is. Uh, Thursdays, uh, every Thursday, 7.30 to 11 o'clock over at the uh, Rock House Live on Raleigh Grange. Brad Webb and Friends, uh, they have their blues jam there. And, uh, geez, I mean, the last few times I've talked to Brad, he's having like 25, 
26.7 jammers. I saw the list that he it's posted amazing. the other day, yeah, you know, yesterday, so it's, it's, Friday. I'm really happy. It's going, oh, yeah, it's going good. Yeah. A lot of people so like it. You don't know who may show up. It's really cool. Oh, sure. Um, and you help out at, uh, at Jack Rouse, the Royal Blues Band, big, big band jam. Uh, that is not this week, but next, the following week, Tuesday, August 20th. That's the third Tuesday of every month. Yes, it is. So, uh, starts that's at a good uh, time over at Lafayette's. 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. That's a good time. That's and it's time. they're strict on the time. They want us out of there by 10 o'clock. There's no horsing around. Yeah, and you are emceeing? I do emcee the thing, yes. Cool. I don't do the list. Jack won't let me play the list, but he knows those guys better than I do and yeah. who's going to because he pairs everybody up. And uh, Yeah, that's that's an art in its own. Uh, yeah, and I don't want to do all yeah, that. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I know the guys, but I don't know who yeah. they like to play with and whatnot, but uh, – <laughs> But it's a fun time. That's and go time. hungry. Oh, they have such great food over there. Very good. Yeah. That's a good room for good sounding. Oh, yeah. Good mm. sounding room. Anyway, uh, the uh, Royal Blues Band Big Band Jam, that is uh, every third Tuesday over at Lafayette's. Um, Delta Blues Winery, we've got some cool things going out there. Um, every second and fourth Sunday, mm-hmm. Memphis Blues Society has a solo or duo gig out there. Uh, Theo Dosbach was there this afternoon. Uh, the the Flying Dutchman, um, or the Boogeyman. Yeah, the Boogeyman. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he had a good show. That was fun. I enjoyed that. He's a, he's a fun guy. Yeah, he is. That was good. Uh, on Sunday the 25th, the Guitar James and Strap. Uh, Scrap, they will be there. That course, they're with Delta Project. Oh, God, look out. That's going to be Oh, Lord. Show. That's going to be good. <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Those two, are they're a hoot. Yeah, by the way, these are 2.30 to 5.30. Easy. Yeah. Old man friendly. Good time. Yeah. Go out there, have you some wine, have you some fun. Yeah. The only thing is, you can't bring alcoholic drinks. Obviously, you're in a. Well, yeah, you're in a winery. Yeah. Go sample the goods. Bring your food. You can bring food. That's all cool. But bring uh, you a basket. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Leave your alcohol at home. There's plenty of great wine and drinks over there in the the tasting room. So that's fun. Um, And they also do Friday night shows. Uh, This Friday, uh, August 16th, the Jason Foray band is there. So that'll be good. And now that is outside. I do want to mention that uh, on the Sunday gigs, those are inside in the tasting rooms. So. Mm-hmm. But on Friday nights, they do their outside gigs. So, uh, Blue City Cafe this week, uh, this two, Thursday the 15th, Sean Bad Apple and Ghost Town Blues Band. That's going to be a good show. Uh, Friday the 16th, uh, John Paul Keith. And then Saturday the 17th, Earl of Pearl Banks, Blind Mississippi Morris, and John Paul Keith. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then next Sunday, Sean Bad Apple and uh, Brandon Cunning Band and Free World. They will be there at Blue City Cafe. At uh, Rumbuggy Cafe this week, uh, Vince Johnson and Plantation All-Stars, they are here tomorrow, the 12th and 13th. Uh, Eric Hughes Band, they are here this uh, Wednesday and Thursday, the 14th and 15th. And uh, Free World is uh, closes out the week this Friday, the 16th and 17th. At uh, Blues Hall. Um, this coming uh, Tuesday, the 13th, is Jeff Jensen, and uh, they've got a cool. Oh, wow, Jeff's in town, yeah. Yeah, they've got a cool new band they're getting together, and I'm trying to talk to them. To get Jeff them played the last jam at Lafayette. Oh, did he? Yes, oh, he was I in the room, and oh, and it was about two thirds of the way through the jam, and Jack said he he leaned over and he goes, "Get, let's get him up here," and uh, I said, "Yeah, sure," you know. So I called him up, and you know, he was of course very gracious to come oh, play, yeah, exactly. and he's so. Off stage, he said, "Yeah, he's like, yeah, this is going to be fun." He's kind of laid back, and he got up on stage. He did three tunes in the place. They all they burned it to the ground. Oh, oh, it, was exactly. a, it was a hell of a show. Oh, that was cool. he. He's running and jumping and dancing and singing and having a big time. Yeah, well, that. Oh, I wish I could have seen that. It too. was so so fun. 
So well, he's back together with Brand Santini, and they've got a group that they're getting together. Oh God, and, uh, that's so, oh, that's trouble right there. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> with Brandon and him, that's uh, that's going to be yeah, big. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm talking. I'm hoping to get Jeff uh, talking to get them in here. That'll be oh, yeah, Jeff and, and and Brandon. And Brandon, we're trying to get the whole band. Well, that's you what better. We're that's what, that's <laughs> no, what we're no pressure, Mark. No, no pressure at all. I know. No uh, that's a tough issues. act to get in here. I, I get. I know, but uh, I yeah, know. that'll be fun. That'll be sweet. So they they got a good band coming together. So sure. Um. Okay, back on the schedule. Um, Vince Johnson and Place, Plantation All Stars. They are at uh, Blues Hall this coming Saturday. Uh, that's Saturday the seventeenth. Uh, Cowboy Neal is over at uh, Blues Hall. This is that next Sunday, the 18th. And at the Tap Room, uh, this is always fun. A Big Don Valentine and Three Piece Chicken and Oh, biscuit. my God, yeah, that's a show. Yeah, they are there uh, this coming uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, Thursday, uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th. That's always a good show. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm trying to get him uh, Don down here, but he has a gig on Sunday, so... He can cancel. There's a break. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's always fun to have him in here. Yeah, so. Well, he's a fun guy. Yeah. I know. Uh, King's Palace. Um, Eric Hughes. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll, give, I'll just give you the schedule this month. Um, on August 17th and the 30th and 31st, the Eric Hughes band plays uh, over at King's Palace Cafe. Right. That is 8 to 12 o'clock. And our friend Doug McLeod, he hits the road this month. And... Uh, this coming week, um, actually tonight, uh, he's doing a blues guitar workshop in Glenmore, Pennsylvania. Uh, the next Friday, Doug is at uh, the Randy Woods Pick and Parlor in Bloomington, Georgia. And then Saturday, he's in Cary, North Carolina. That's a, I'll tell you, I was blown away by the show he did here. That was wonderful. Um, okay, we got a few things coming up here now, here locally. Um, Right now, um, this coming Saturday, or I'm sorry, yeah, Saturday the 17th, it's the 17th annual Memphis Tri-State Blues Festival, and it's uh, featuring Big Pokey Bear, and that's down at the Lander Center in South Haven. Mm-hmm. Uh, for more information about that, go to landercenter.com. And um, last thing, we've got a few, this is a few weeks out, but some great shows to be kicking, you know, to think about. Um, on Sunday, September 1st, the Arl Boyce uh, Picnic and a birthday celebration. That's down at the Como Park down in Como, Mississippi. And uh, that is a great show. Um, they will be here in two Sundays. The uh, Royal Boys will be here to promote yes, that show. Yes, so yes, that's yes. going to be a fun time. So, you know, this is, this is the most critical thing this week, if you uh, don't note this. But uh, on Sunday, September 8th, um, Jim McCrothwaite, our our guest tonight, um, he's going to be having an opening day, and this is the Artists of the Rural Route, and this is going to be out the uh, K&O Gallery in Cordova, Tennessee, and uh, that is a mix of four or six artists that were doing previously the Rural Route tour, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So that will be from September 8th to 29th. Again, that's at the WKNL Gallery out in Cordova. Uh, but the opening day for this is on Sunday, September 8th from 2 to 4 o'clock. That's right. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Good show. It, How many pieces do you, do you think you might have? I think it? I'll have uh, between 30 and 40 pieces. I do uh, uh, pen and ink drawings that are somewhat like mazes, um, and I do steel and clay sculpture, uh, some freestanding, some wall-hanging pieces. Um, I have lower 
end uh, priced uh, pieces like wallflowers and tabletop cool. flowers cool. and then high priced pieces that I don't know, range up to $1,000 or so. But, well, the stuff I've seen you show uh, me looks phenomenal. The, the different so. artists, uh, there's a, a painter, uh, Deborah Carpenter, uh, who does uh, really, really beautiful work. And Larry Luger and his wife Andrea have the Luger foundry. They do bronze oh, yeah. casting. Yeah. Uh, they're located on Highway 64 near Eads, Tennessee, and Butch and Ellen Bain have the Eads Gallery. Butch is a photographer and Ellen is a potter, and Agnes Stark's pottery uh, will be shown. Agnes um, is out kind of in my neck of the woods, uh, just out of Arlington. Uh, Deborah Carpenter's studio is on Canada Road, and normally we would do these shows, and it would be like a, a, a group uh, gathering of, of uh, uh, a, a tour, yeah, more or yeah, less, from exactly. one from one studio yeah. to another. This year, we're all just consolidated uh, there at the WKNO Gallery so that well, you only have to go to one place to see us all. Well, hopefully get a lot of people out a, there to collectively see everything. Yeah. That'll be cool. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, anyway, that is Sunday, September 8th to 29th out at the Cano Gallery uh, in Cordova. And, again, the opening day is Sunday, September 8th from 2 to 4 o'clock. So yeah, will you be there, you. Jimmy, for the opening? You saved me from being uh, sort of shamelessly oh. self-promoting. <laughs> no, no, we, no we, need to, we need to push this. you got some incredible art, Jimmy. You really do. <laughs> it's the old joke, if you're not going to promote it, who will, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyway, that that is something really special. So well, that'll be good. Thanks for good. bringing it. I up, hope that Mark. goes real well for you. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. And the last thing, uh, well, I will say this: we had a really good benefit last uh, Sunday for Chick Chick. I heard. I heard that it was very well. sweet, very nice, and a lot of fun. It went real good. Everyone had a great time. Um, the basically the money collected. Uh, Chick's Chick has passed away. But, right. Uh, the money collected is going to go to our Papa Dominic Men Fund, and. Uh, Anyway, that kind of leads me to, up to what we're doing here. Um, on Sunday, September 29th, we will be back at Neal's, uh, 4 to 10, probably 10.30 maybe. Um, this is going to be our annual Memphis Blue Society Papa Dominic Men Musician Fund uh, benefit. Just a straight-up uh, benefit, just a, yeah. a bunch of different acts come yeah. out and enjoy the show. Um, and, this could yeah. be kind of cool. We're trying to get, uh, I'm calling trying to get, get as many musicians as we can that did play uh, with Papa Don mm -hmm. in the past, you know, with the Rumble Band and so on, so... Uh, I think we'll have a great lineup, so we're working on that right now. So, yeah, just a heads up, put that on your calendar. That'll be over at Neil's Music Room at 5727 Quince Road out in East Memphis, uh, Sunday, September, 9, September 29th, 4 to 1030. And uh, as we have more information on the lineup, probably in a couple weeks, I think we'll have the lineup nailed down. Good, so good deal. That'll be good. Uh, as always, uh, you know, thank you, Rick. And, oh, thank uh, you, Mark. Always, uh, we just want to encourage, invite everyone to please support Memphis. All your, support your local music, Memphis. I'm not saying that right. Support your your local music wherever you're at. Exactly. Um, go see a show. Go see some live music. Uh, You'll have more fun than put, you realize. You yeah. will, you will exactly. Yeah. And don't forget to put the money in the tip bucket. That is critical. Sure. 
Um, Brother got to eat. They may not eat. realize yeah. that maybe they're pay for the night. So. <laughs> maybe they're pay for the or week. Or part of it, yeah. yeah. So that's critical. You know, please tip the band. If they've got merch, you know, buy some merch from them. Buy some records. Get a, get a CD. Yeah, get a help, shirt. Get a sticker. Them. It's good. It's good time. So anyway, well, thank you very much. Next week on the program. Next week's going to be cool. Um, we have the uh, Danny Green. And uh, Reva Wayne, who was a jingle writer in the commercial yes. days, we're going to have fun talking about that. <laughs> that will be interesting. Yeah, uh, he would write jingles for for radio and television commercials. Yeah, so that'll be cool. I'm yeah. looking forward to that show. That's going to be good. Um, and then it's Reba and Wayne Russell. Reba, and, Ram- Reba and Wayne Russell and Danny Green. And Danny Green. Uh, yeah. They actually, I don't know if they really. I think they just that's the way they build themselves when they play. It's just yeah. Danny Green and, and Reba and Wayne Russell. So all three of them are going to play. They will all be here, so that's going to be a fun time. It'll be a fun night, yeah. It'll be a good time. Good. Very good. That'll be next week on the program. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for everything. Uh, we got more. With, does, so thank you. As we begin to wrap it up here on uh, this Sunday night here, Mr. Jimmy Crosswaite is here, uh, artist, musician, mud boy, and the Neutrons. <laughs> There's a video of you on, on, uh, on the YouTube of you giving a tour of your home. Yeah. What a cool spot. Well, thanks. We put a lot of work into it. And, uh, you know, Robert Gordon mentions it in his book, It Came From Memphis. Yeah. And the way he phrases it, I thought was kind of kind of interesting. Uh, I was an art major in college, mm-hmm. and I heard about a puppeteer in Florida, so I... Uh, set out writing letters to see if I could work out an apprenticeship or something with this puppeteer because it would be great to, uh, I had been making sculpture and this seemed like it might be the opportunity of uh, making my sculptures move. Yeah, or, you know, bring them to life and, a little bit. Yeah. And Gordon talks about that a little bit and then he says that I built a house which was sort of like a sculpture I could move into. (laughs) (laughs) It's a neat spot. It really is. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, I'm in the woods out in Arlington. Uh, I was outside of Arlington when we first built it, and then Arlington (laughs) incorporated us. Uh, That particular area, the locals call the gullies because of the lay of the Mm -hmm. land that's got a, a bunch of gullies. My next-door neighbors are uh, really uh, very creative people, Wolfgang and Diane. They have a a nursery garden out there that they call Garden Zoeve, and we are fenceless neighbors with them. They have four acres, and we have eight, so we have about 12 acres to be able to wander through and well that's nice yeah they've completely landscaped you know their four acres mine are still pretty rugged and (laughs) the way it should be quite frankly jimmy you know (laughs) but uh railings around my deck i torched out the steel and uh some of the windows i had uh etched the glass with sandblasting and neat uh it's uh kind of a two-story cypress wood house in the woods, so it's a bit like a tree house. 
And, yeah, but uh, you say two stories, but there's like four floors. I mean, there's a basement. Well, yeah, and, there's a basement, a first floor, and second then, floor, and then an attic. So you finished is, out the attic, though, right? Yeah. There are 36 steps, and I made all of the, <laughs> the risers. Every stinking uh, one I of mean, them, yeah. <laughs> we worked on that for about two years before we moved in. Yeah. And the upper floor was an apartment my father lived in for almost as many years as I lived in his house. (laughs) In the end, I was about ready to tell him to get a haircut and a job. (laughs) Move out, man. (laughs) What comes around, comes around. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I, I tell you what, uh, uh, Jimmy, I, I, one of the things that uh, stuck in my mind came up earlier in the show today, and you certainly personify this, is that as an artist, whether, whether whatever it is that you do artistically or creatively, whether it's painting or sculpture or word work or music, if it's in you, it has to come out. And you didn't say it quite like that, but, but yeah, you it, have it, to find those avenues. Essentially it, you know. Uh, yeah, that creative that thing. Blow up, you know. You have to, it's a release for you. Yeah. And I know with your physical work, your your sculpture work, we saw some pieces that you're doing. But you know, have, so. the uh, the Greeks, ancient Greeks, didn't have a word for art. They had two types of work. One was work of a more menial nature, like digging ditches or whatever. Sure. The other was the work of making, you know, columns or vases or whatever. But. Uh, they didn't call it art. It was. It's all work. Sure. Um, well, art is work. Uh, the uh, folks in in like Bali uh, talk about. They don't have a word for art. They just do everything as well as they can. You know, and a funeral. I like that. And I a funeral in Bali can take. Maybe 10 years worth of salary, uh, you know, a person's earnings, just to build these very elaborate towers with different carved uh, creatures and whatnot and right. pagoda-like things. And they uh, spend a fortune and hire artisans to create this structure that they put the body down in the lower tiers, take it to the beach and set it on fire. Into something, know? yeah, yeah, and it's gone. Yeah, you know, but uh, uh, that it, the art is the process, not the product. Exactly. Um, <laughs> the uh, the street artist um, that nobody knows. Um, oh, he does the graffiti. Uh, oh, uh, Banksy. Yeah. And the piece that that wound up in an auction, that was in the frame, and he had timed a shredder uh, into yes, it. Yes, to where and it, it just, and it started I to shred that. the piece, and, yeah. and the video was hysterical because everybody freaked out. It was like a four or five million dollar piece, and the thing malfunctioned and it stopped halfway through. And he goes, "I just created another piece of art." Your yeah. sign up in the corner. I was almost reminiscent of that. I filmed your death. Yeah, well, that came <laughs> but, from some filmmakers you know, that that made a, a movie. piece of artwork. Watch it die. Watch it die. You know? And it's like it was the ultimate expression of an artist mm-hmm. is that here it is. Your interpretation is not my business, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to destroy it in front of your very eyes after you've written this check. And it's it was fantastic. <laughs> I, it, it really was. 
Um, out of all of the out of the artwork that you do, I mean, do you do you have your favorites? I know with between music and and painting and sculpture well, or writing. I mean, is is there something that you really find yourself leaning more toward? Uh, it, it just depends on what time it is. I mean, uh, well, I'll three go o'clock on periods <laughs> where I, uh, I I draw these mazes, these pen and ink mazes that. I was trying to explain to Mark, uh, are a little like... Uh, like a fractal piece? Yin-yang, uh, uh, how RNA may talk to DNA, yeah. you know, it, uh, my mind gets to sort of wander. Uh, but I try to do work that is uh, uh, almost um, timeless in that you don't know exactly what culture produced it or at what time in like it shouldn't matter yeah uh my my drawings can have elements that are sort of um, native american or eastern or South American, like Mayan, and it could be from the 6th century or the 17th century. You showed us a piece that was inspired by the... 25th century. You showed us a piece that was inspired by the I Ching. Yeah. You know, so it's... Uh, And the I Ching is a sort of a timeless uh, uh, philosophy and uh, based essentially on the Tao Te Ching, which is uh, the sort of early writings of Taoism. Um, And uh, I I don't know why I sometimes I'm compelled to sort of do these drawings, but I can't just do them all the time. So it's good to be able to go into my basement workshop and just take a handful of clay and start making a mud boy clay flowers <laughs> uh, a mud boy i actually made a few sculptures that i called mud babies mud ba- that were small <laughs> and i made about 30 of them and then i was kind of burned out you know? i would imagine I so to make another damn mud baby i'm you know? done with I those live the rest of my life without <laughs> making another one and um so i just sort of uh moved from one form to another and, uh, you have a lot of muses, it sounds as Well, the music is... Uh, no, muses, not music, but muses, those that inspire oh, you. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, it sounds like there's a muse that, that comes to you for pen and ink well, and one for sculpture and one for music. Yeah, and again, I've had just uh, different influences. Burton Calicut was uh, an artist in Memphis that uh, I first... Uh, became aware of when I was uh, five and six years old working at the Children's Theater when it was housed at the Memphis Pink Palace Museum. And in the entryway of the old part of the Pink Palace Museum is a triptych, a mural that Burton painted um, as part of a WPA program for artists Mm -hmm. during the Depression that depicts Hernando discovering 
the Mississippi River, and you see these Spanish conquistadors and these near-naked red savage Indians pulling back their bows and their kind of mohawk hair. And I saw those uh, when I was five and six, and it made the hair on my arms stand up and it was kind of creepy and weird and they're bigger than life and uh, you know that was the first time that a work of art just actually reached out and grabbed me by my throat and pulled me in yeah yeah oh, yeah and gave me the willies as it was called when i was a kid but i loved yeah. it yeah, and it steers you into into what you wound up doing for the rest of your life. Well, <laughs> you know, on that one and, piece. Yeah, and I lived for twenty years on Burton Calicut's property. In <laughs> well, a, yeah, in a house that he and his stepfather had built with these uh, <clears throat> uh, concrete pillars and arches that looked somewhat Moroccan, and um, yeah, uh, and. His his stepfather was a man named Michael Lapt who used to build floats for the Cotton Carnival parades wow. here in Memphis. Wow! And I was finding myself in his studio out in the garage network uh, and working with the little drawers and cubby holes and in his studio while I'm making my puppets and stuff. And there was just a continuation of. You know, this little, and, and he was a Hungarian immigrant, Michael mm-hmm. Apt was. And he um, married Burton's mother, and Burton had a twin brother, and they were 17 when Michael Apt married their mother. Yeah. And essentially used them as slave labor to build these houses. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, they, ne- <laughs> they never lived in the house. Yeah, you just built this for me, yeah. But Burton ended up going to the Cleveland School of Art where Michael Apt had uh, gone. Yeah. And uh, I think Michael Apt, you know, landed in Memphis. He was just doing a float trip down the river from <laughs> Cleveland to landing in memphis when his you know his barge stopped here it's a leak or something you know we're gonna get off here yeah yeah (laughs) i ask or tell people when they i uh i they say you know i say where are you from and they'll go you know Denver or whatever, and I'll usually say, "What happened? Did your car break down? <laughs> what brought you to Memphis?" Memphis. Yeah. I've, I'm a transplant myself. I grew up in South Texas, and I came here for this business. But, um, but I, but I, yeah, I got the business all right. But the, but the, but the, the what I have discovered is that Memphis, it does kind of suck you in. Oh yeah, and you can't leave. It's hard to you leave can, it. You can leave for a little while, but it's like you've got a rubber band attached and it's to gonna your pull spine, you right and back eventually, in. yep, you'll come. And right then you back. go, man, why did I leave in the first place? Yeah, there's 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 an orbit here of people that just and and it's just art and food and culture and there's such a wild mixing pot, you know, yeah. a melting pot, if you will. Yeah, of everything and no that one has successfully de- told. Uh, defined for me what that really is i mean you're right there is the power of the mississippi river and god knows if you could find a way to harness it you could light the globe from pole to pole you're right you know you're right but and so there is that that actual current 
you know, mm-hmm. which has to probably have some sort of magnetic qualities about it. There's something but, about uh, it, that's for sure. You know, but uh, it's just hard to say. I mean, the Indians that lived here are, uh, disappeared, and, yeah. uh, you know. They were the ones that got out, but (laughs) (laughs) under more nefarious circumstances, of course. Yeah, because I always love that image in my head of DeSoto discovering the the river. And it's like, there he is on the bluff, goes, yep, there it is, and this is where I stop. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, I I interviewed Burton and did a documentary, a video documentary of him, and he was talking about, well, you know, the Spanish had come from Florida. They were searching for gold. They... uh, were you know had to fight Indians and sickness and uh, you know they hadn't found any gold and then they got to the bluffs overlooking the Mississippi River the largest river he had ever seen and yes like he said and it's like well I guess this is where it stops. <laughs> <laughs> There's, and that's Arkansas. Y'all keep it. You know, I, I kid. Of <laughs> but that's the way. That's the way. That yeah. kind of way, what it is. And and this sound. This city has gone through so much in its 200 years. I mean, with the yellow fever, that which yeah. was just in, oh uh, yeah, the, the stuff of the Civil War. We and, pretty much missed the Civil War. You yeah, know, we kind of we did. Were occupied, yeah. and yeah. there were a couple of you know some skirmishes north and south of us. People went but. down to the banks to watch some riverboat, you know, warfare that occurred. Yeah, there uh, it was a spectator sport. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it was almost like we were not so much touched by the Civil War, but a few years later, we got just hammered yeah. by the yellow fever, and uh, uh, gee. And but the the music that came out of the plantations and the uh, we are truly the home and birth of the blues, rock and roll, uh, almost <clears throat> jazz equal to New Orleans. Sure. Um, Gospel. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's all still quite alive, well, and uh, thriving. And it, and each uh, musician uh, offers the next generation uh, a wealth to to uh, share. Sharing the wealth. Sharing the wealth. <laughs> that it is. Um, and on that, um, I wanted to to wrap it up with one more tune from Mudboy and the Neutrons, um, Dark End of the Street. Oh, yeah. I think it's appropriate because we've been talking about this city for this yeah. amount of time. <laughs> and you were, you were saying that this song is really indicative of— It's almost of, the anthem of the city. It really kind of should be. You know, <laughs> I don't know that they'll ever make up. A convention well, and visitors bureau video thing, over it to sell Memphis the city, but is not a city; it's a big town. It is, yeah. It's a big, and small really, town. Yeah. yeah, everybody knows everybody. Yeah, you know, and 
everybody knows what actually happens at the dark end of the street. And if you don't live here, you cannot badmouth this town. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Crossway, ladies and gentlemen. Jimmy, thank you so very much. It's my pleasure. Anytime you want to come down and come hang, you're more than welcome to. We love having you around, buddy. Um, And on that, uh, we'll end it with this tune, Mud Boy and the Neutrons, uh, Dark End of the Street. Uh, This one is from They Walk Among Us. Is that it? You know, I'm not I think sure. it is. Yeah, it's the, it's the one that you, it's the one that I ripped in earlier. <laughs> and who wrote this? Was it uh, also Dan Penn? I believe it was. I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite the collaborative effort, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a lot here. Jimmy, thank you so much, buddy. We'll see you next time. Here you go, kids. We'll see y'all later. Good night.
chance we should meet downtown. If you should see me, just walk on by. Oh now, darling, please don't cry. The proceeding was produced by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated and originally aired live on Radio Memphis. Any offers or advertisement contained may not still be valid. All rights are reserved and copyright is held by Pirate Radio Studios Incorporated, Memphis, Tennessee. For more, look for all the RMOD players at radio-memphis.com. <laughs>